So let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Provoked by idols is the title of the message. Provoked by idols. Provoked by idols. A funny title, but it comes right from the text. So I'd like to read to you the passage that has that text. And and then we're going to preach a message on worshiping God, which is what we've been doing and we're going to continue doing and we'll finish the morning doing and what they're doing in Cuba right now. Ruben is leading a service right now in Matanzas on the northern coast of Cuba, some 90 miles from Key West, and they're worshiping God right now. So let's join them. Acts 17, please, verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let me read that again. Acts 17, verse 16. Follow along in your Bibles. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Lord, may you provoke our souls with a glory and the passion that only you have. And may we have a divine passion, a divine jealousy that all people everywhere would worship you alone and would be done with their idols. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Desi, my wife, and I visited New York City for our anniversary several years ago. Desi's brother lives in an upscale neighborhood called the West Village, so we had a perfect place from which we could tour the city every day. I enjoy visiting cities that have a history and a strategic significance in the world, and New York City has both. A teeming metropolis of well over 8 million people, full of life and things to see. We visited, amongst other things, Wall Street, the World Trade Center area, Chinatown, Little Italy, the Rockefeller Center, Central Park, Fifth Avenue, Times Square, and we took in a Broadway musical. We observed the people, the architecture, and the culture of the city, and we concluded this is an impressive city, in many respects a beautiful city. So what connection is there between our trip to New York City several years ago and Paul's trip to Athens here in Acts 17, 16. Well, here's the connection. Like New York, Athens was a city with a history. It had been the foremost city-state for over 500 years, spanning both the Greek Empire and the current Roman Empire. Like New York, Athens was an impressive city. Actually, it was a university city. It was the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all called Athens home. Philosophies and ideas all flowed freely in the streets of Athens. And you can be sure that Paul was listening. Like New York, Athens was a beautiful city. It was an architectural marvel with magnificent buildings and monuments erected to the gods, the most famous of which were located on the Acropolis, 
an elevated hill overlooking the city that has been described as, quote, one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and the worship of the gods. There may have been, in the city of Athens, at this time, as many as 70,000 monuments and statues and altars to gods. 70,000. One ancient historian described Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice to the gods. Another satirist commented that it was easier to find a god there than a man. The Parthenon, which sits atop the Acropolis, housed the great statue of the goddess Athena, after whom the city was named. Standing over 30 feet tall, imagine a three-story statue made of gold and silver and marble. In fact, her gleaming spear could be seen from over 40 miles away at night. Beautiful picture of the Parthenon lit up. Imagine Athena in there in the first century. All very impressive, all very beautiful. But according to Acts 17, 16, Paul was not impressed by the physical beauty of the city and her statutes. He was provoked by the spiritual ugliness of a city flooded with idols. That word in verse 16, that the city was full of idols, that Greek word has a range of meaning that can include flooded, swamped. We've all had the rains recently in South Florida. We know what it is to be swamped and flooded. This was a city flooded, not only by idols, but by the spiritual ugliness of a people ignorant of the true and living God who were giving the honor and glory due Jesus' name to all of these idols and gods who were no gods at all. And it provoked Paul. See, unlike Desi and my trip to New York City, Paul did not travel to Athens as a tourist. No. He was in Athens because of the persecution he experienced in Berea. And he had been escorted out of Berea, she'll show the map, placed on a boat. Remember, this is the second missionary journey. And he took this boat trip from Berea, over there where it says Macedonia, you see that line, that boat trip all the way to Athens, modern day Greece, at the bottom of the peninsula. He was there because he was fleeing persecution. He was there on the second missionary journey. He was there praying for his buddies, Silas and Timothy, who were back up the Macedonian peninsula in Berea, preaching and teaching the gospel in a church where there was persecution, much like our brothers and sisters preach and teach in their country, and we want to support them. Paul was praying for his buddies in another land under a lot of pressure, and he was in the city by himself, and he was seeing the beauty, and he was seeing the idols, and quite frankly, he was Provoked. The more he prayed, the more he walked around, the more he saw things, he was provoked. What provoked him? Let me tell you what provoked him. That the true and living God, Jesus Christ, was not being worshipped, but a bunch of idols that were no idols at all. What does that have to do with me, Al? Last time I checked, there's no 30-foot statue of Athena in Miami. No, but there may be one in your heart. You see, because an idol is a God substitute. It is anything we put in the place of God in our lives. For example, biblical example, 
covetousness. Fancy term for wanting what is not yours. Look at Colossians 3, 5 on the screen. It says this, the Apostle Paul writing, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Ken Sandy, who's an author, a man that I respect greatly, defines idolatry in the following way. Ken Sandy, defining idolatry this way. An idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God and can also be referred to as a false god or a functional god. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us or that we serve. What motivates you? What rules you? What do you set your heart on, friend? If it's above God, you've got an idol. And I would say this city doesn't have 70,000 altars and monuments and statues. It has millions. Because we can erect a mental idol far quicker than we can erect a metal idol. Oh, friends... These idols can include, but not limited to, success, money, sex, power, alcohol, drugs, food, friends, parents, spouse, children, church. Yes, church. If it's above God, our hearts produce these idols. Our cities are full of these altars and statues that we've built, that we've, left, that we've rested our lives upon, that, we, that motivate us, that we live for. What do you live for? What excites you? Where's your passion? Friend, that may be where an idol lies if it's not God primarily. Where do you give the priority to? What do you give your thought, time, treasures, money, affections to primarily? Who gets the first dibs on you? And who gets the cold leftovers? Do you come this morning white hot with passion or do you reserve that for tonight speaking from one who has many idols built under the goddess of ESPN there's a gator (laughs) but seriously no problem getting excited tonight but what happens tonight will have very little significance in eternity What happens right now has all the significance in eternity. I will watch the game tonight and scream and yell. You hear me say that? But do I look forward to Sunday morning with equal passion? Well, this is what provoked Paul in verse 16. Does it provoke us? Are we provoked as Paul was when we see what is happening in our lives, in our church, in our city, when we see the worship that is only due Jesus Christ being given to idols, being given to your friend right now next to you, being given to the text message you're engaged in right now, or the thought you're thinking right now. When God is appealing to you, think his thoughts. So Paul was so provoked in his soul that he stopped touring and he started talking. 
He stopped touring and he started talking. And this is what he said. Look at verse 17. What did he do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul could not stay quiet in the face of idolatrous worship. His spirit was provoked. He was motivated by the Holy Spirit to proclaim to the Athenians the true and living God and call them to worship Him and Him alone. Friends, that is God's burden for us this morning in the text. God's claim on our lives this morning in the text is that we would know and proclaim Jesus, the true and living God, calling all people everywhere to worship Him. In fact, that's the propositional statement for the message this morning. Proclaim the true and living God, calling all people to worship Him. Proclaim the true and living God, calling all people to worship Him. Paul proclaims Jesus, the true and living God, and he calls all people to worship Him. And he does it in Acts 17, 22-31 in what is called his address in the Areopagus. Or Areopagus. But before we get to that address, let me just remind you, he was also sharing Jesus in the marketplace. This is what's called the Agora. So before he got to the Areopagus, he was sharing in the marketplace, which wasn't just a marketplace for food, it was a marketplace for ideas. And so there he was reasoning with people. There he was talking to people. And while he was doing that, I want to set the context for you for Paul's address in the Areopagus. I want to set the context for you. Before he got there, we we notice in verse 18, very clearly, that Paul was reasoning with them about what? He was telling them what? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You see that at the end of verse 18? He was doing it both in the synagogue and in the agora, in the marketplace. He was doing it with God-freeing Greeks, as was his practice. But he was doing it in these marketplaces. And he was doing it with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers hiding around or walking around in the uh, porticos of this marketplace. And what they accused him of, what they accused him of, was preaching new deities. You see, when they heard him preach Jesus, and when they heard them preach the resurrection, which the Greek word for resurrection is Anastasia, or Anastasius, they thought he was preaching a, a male deity, Jesus, and a female deity, resurrection. Now, this is what you need to know. Even though there were over 70,000 statutes, altars, and monuments to the gods in Athens, there was a very careful control placed on who could introduce a god to the city. 
You couldn't just go out in the middle of the night and erect a statue, altar, or monument to some God that you thought up in your head. You had to have that God and your teaching approved by the Areopagus Council. In fact, it was a crime to introduce any God that was not authorized by the Areopagus Council. One could pay a hefty fine, including one could be summarily executed, killed. If you introduced a foreign deity without their approval, does that now raise the tension a little bit to what he's about to do in his address in the Areopagus to the council? I mean, he's under fire. He's being accused, as these guys say in verse 18, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. So so this accusation of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, of the leaders of Athens, kind of hangs over Paul. And in verse 19, kind of takes a little bit more of a turn for us when we read it, we understand that he could be killed if they don't approve what he's preaching. And we haven't gotten to that point yet in this country. It may come. Listen to 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Oh, friends. Friends. Knowing now the background, knowing now the tension. This is no casual philosophical conversation at a Starbucks somewhere or in a pub somewhere with some erudite, uh, you know, professors of the university with their pipes and their little vests. No, 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 no. This is an intense political conversation. This is your life is on the line, Paul. This is a courageous biblical exposition of Jesus Christ by one of his followers who is provoked in his heart that people aren't worshiping Jesus. Paul's putting his life on the line. Yet again, for the sake of the gospel. So let's listen in to what he says. Verse 22. Paul's address at the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples made by man. I can just imagine him pointing up to the Parthenon. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now, but now, and he points the finger, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Paul was courageous, friends. This was not a ranting and raving on a street corner in Miami where everybody walks by and isn't paying attention. This is not a lecture at the University of Miami College uh, in a philosophy class where the most you're going to get is a, a little scoffing. This was a man who preached Jesus, called people to worship Jesus, who, if he was not approved, his message was not approved, could have been executed. It's interesting. He starts by commending their religiosity. See that in verse 22? We need to understand something about these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers before we dive into Paul's address to them. And to that end, John Stott helps us with the summary of what they believe. This quote from John Stott to help summarize in your mind the prevailing philosophical trends of Athens and the world at that time. To oversimplify, it was characteristic of Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure, and of the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. Now, we can all think of people in our culture today who fit into these broad categories of philosophy of life. The person who says, hey, life's a party. Enjoy it now while it lasts. The highest goal is my happiness and fulfillment, and I will escape pain at any cost. Welcome to the Epicurean in Miami. The other person says, shut up and submit. Life is tough, but you trudge ahead each day with a fatalistic view that whatever will be, will be. We just take it, make the best of it, we endure. That's the guy that quotes, not from the Bible, God helps those that help themselves. Welcome to your modern day Stoic. Both of them fail to understand God. They both have erected an altar to a God in their own minds. They don't know who it is. They know there must be a God out there somewhere, this philosophy of life. And they worship at it. They try to live according to their philosophy of life. Paul addresses them and us by telling the council that he observed this altar to the unknown God. And it is this God, not a new God. Notice what he says. It's this God I'm going to exposit. I'm going to make known the unknown God that's already an altar that you've approved in your city. That was wise. That was smart. So in verse 17, 23b, Paul says this. What therefore, what therefore, look at it, 17, 23b, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Oh, friends, listen to me. Those of you who are seated here, if you are here as an Epicurean or a Stoic who lives your life by a philosophy of your choosing, but who really does not know God, though you suspect there is a God, there has to be a God out there somewhere, so maybe you're here somehow to worship this unknown God. Listen carefully, because Paul is going to make him known to you right now. And dear follower of Christ, you who know this God, you know Jesus because he knew you first, As you hear Paul proclaiming the true and living God in the following verses, please know that God's claim on your life, on our lives as a church, is that we would know him and proclaim him. Point number one of the message, the main point is proclaim the living God. Proclaim the true and living God. So who is he? Who is the true and living God? Well, Paul starts at the beginning. Look at verse 24. He is the creator of all. He is the creator of all. Verse 24. 
the God who made the world and everything in it. The God who made the world and everything in it. You want to know who the true and living God is? He's the creator of all. This is a a doctrine. This is a teaching that has been attacked in our culture now. It's almost assumed that creationism is wrong. It's not wrong. It's right. Wicked men have said it's wrong because they don't want to serve the creator. Because if I am created, then I owe an allegiance to the creator, don't I? See, the universe was not created by a chance coming together of atoms, you modern Epicurean. That's what the Epicureans believed. It's all by chance. The the Epicureans were the modern-day deconstructionists. They were the indie crowd. I'm going to deconstruct everything. Everything's by chance. I'm going to be quirky and weird. I'm not going to commit to anything. I'm going to live for me. You're just a modern-day Epicurean. You're not really that cool. And you can't really build on you because you don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. You're funny. You're cute. Your music videos are really entertaining. But you're like a puff of breath. You're gone. Nor, Mr. Stoic, it is the universe, shut up and submit, right? Have you ever heard that from my lips? Okay. Just get over it. Get tough. Come on, kids. I know we ran out of gas, and I know it's midnight, and it's in Orlando, and the youngest of you is three years old, but just stop whining and follow Dad walking back home. I actually said that. Okay. It's amazing my kids love me. It is God's grace. Okay, here we go. Manolito, you're a stoic, by the way. This guy will run through brick walls, actually steel walls. You want to know the man of steel? He's right here. He sits right here. Forget about the movies. There's the man of steel. Stoics! All right. But hey, Mr. Stoic, nor is the universe held together by impersonal forces of fate and nature. No. No. It's not just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Some impersonal force of nature or fate. It's a personal creator. This was shocking for them. And he's the guy you've been worshiping as the unknown God. I'll tell you who he is. He's the personal creator of you. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, first verse of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. You've got to believe that. It's vital. It's vital. The God we proclaim is the personal creator and he's the Lord over all that exists and as such, and as such, he cannot be located in a temple or a hill, no matter how fancy that hill or how beautiful it might be. As Paul is reading, as Paul is preaching there, we read in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in the temples made by man. I could just see Paul pointing up to the the Parthenon. How can you think that he lives up there? Now, to you, dear Stoic Epicurean, to me, Alpino, nor does he live in my little mental structures and monuments and altars that I create in my mind. God cannot be held in a metal structure. God cannot be held in a mental structure. God cannot be bound by you or me or anybody. God loves to just destroy these idols and monuments that we erect in our minds and in our hearts. 
What are the ones that you need to pull down and destroy in your mind and heart? We read further, skipping down to verses 28b and 29, and Paul here quotes one of their poets, talk about contextualization. Pretty powerful. In verse 28b, Listen to what Paul says. For we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Oh my. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. So this is his logic to them. He says, listen. If we are created by God, and if he creates us in his image, because your own poet said, your own poet, he quotes their own poet back to him, and he was right, we are indeed his offspring. That's general revelation. If that is true, and we are animate, we live and move and have our being, we run around, we build things, we talk, how in the world can you then create God out of the art and imagination of your mind and say that he's an inanimate statue? It doesn't make sense. I could just see the Epicureans going, hmm. Boy's got a point here. And we, here's the sad thing. We go to these idols that are inanimate, that can't talk, that can't move, that can't do anything. And we expect them to help us. And I could just hear Paul. I bet you he was thinking this verse. He was thinking Isaiah 57, 13. And Isaiah said this, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Your idols, your idols, the idols of your making, friends, whatever your art and imagination has crafted about God and some mental uh, concept of God, it will always fail you. It will always disappoint you. Whatever you are basing your life on, whatever motivates you that's not God, whether it's people or possessions, listen, they're always going to fail you. But here's what provokes me. You're not worshiping the true God. You're worshiping that person, that possession, that promotion. That place. Oh. Worship the true and living God. Who is the true and living God? 1B, he's the sustainer of all. He's the sustainer of all. God is the sustainer of all. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath, life and breath, and everything. Here we find the independence of God. The independence of God. God does not need us. We need Him. The fancy theological term for talking about the independence of God is the aseity of God. Aseity of God. It comes from the Latin terms a and se, from Himself. De si mismo, if you speak Spanish, close. I say, he's of himself. He is self-sufficient, totally. He doesn't need us, but we need him. So I could just hear Paul thinking about Psalm 50, thinking about all the sacrifices that are happening up on the Parthenon, up on that hill, where they're just 
slaughtering bulls and goats and there's blood and all these statutes and they're, they're doing all these sacrifices as if God needed the food and God needed the blood and God needed, I don't know what. And then Paul, I'm sure, was thinking Psalm 50 and it's up on the screen, verses 12 to 15. God speaking, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God does not need our sacrifices for sustenance, but rather God sustains us with everything we need, life and breath and everything. God does not need us, but we, on the other hand, need him for our very existence. We need God for life and breath and everything. And in his kindness, listen to me, dear unbelieving friend, in his kindness, God gives us what we need. He even gives rain to the wicked. He sustains every proud malcontent who ignores or curses his name. He gives you Dear one who refuses to worship him this morning, the very breath you are taking right now. 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 And if he didn't give it to you, you would die. Oh, let us stop our worship of anybody, anything else but God. Who is this God that we... Proclaim C, 1C. He's the ruler of all. Look at verses 26 to 28. God is the ruler of all. And he made from one man, he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even one of some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In verses 26 to 28, we read that God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind, hence abolishing the foolish sin of racism, as if any of us is superior since we all came from one man. And we learn that God rules these nations that he made from the one man, and he allotted to them the period and the boundaries of each nation. The period, he allotted to them when they would live, when you would live, and the boundaries, what nation, the boundaries of the very nations, your boundaries, where you were born, where you grew up, and where you live right now, they're all allotted by God. Now this concept to the Greeks, to the Epicureans and the Stokes, was totally foreign. This concept of a common ancestry. Nowhere to be found in Greek or Roman mythology. It's uniquely Bible. It's uniquely Bible. God is the ruler of the nations. He's established everything down to when you live, how old you are right now, and what country you live in, and the borders of your country. He's established your race, your city, your age, your time. Thus, to complain about any of them is to not worship God. Friends, where and when you were born and the fact that you live in the United States of America right now and are sitting in this auditorium were all determined by God. My father was born in Cienfuegos, Cuba, actually outside in a little place called Ojo de Agua. I believe my ancestry either comes from the Canary Islands or Sicily, one of the two. Dad and I have talked a little bit, Mom and I. The Pino name, it's Italian. In 1940, my dad, as a 19-year-old man, had a decision to make. Depression was on. He was either going to go from Cienfuegos, Cuba, to work in the oil fields of Venezuela, 
or go study at Auburn University in Alabama. I didn't know you guys would be here. And he chose Auburn University in Alabama. My life would have been very different had he chosen the former, the oil fields of Venezuela. And though my dad's decision was a true decision and my dad made it, friends, the Bible tells me that God directed my dad in making that decision. And the fact that I was born in the United States of America is by God's hand. Now, why? Why? Here is the interesting part. God determines and rules all that. God makes all that happen. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The reason he determined God is, God determined where we live, when we live, is so that we would seek him and perhaps feel our way toward him and perhaps find him. The Greek word there, feel, in that verse, has a range of meaning that really includes someone groping. Think of a blind man groping, fumbling. The sense, really, of this word is that he will not find anything. And that's the sense here. The groping is a futile groping because we know elsewhere in the Bible, the Bible says that there is no one who seeks after God, truly seeks after God. There's no one that is looking for God. But but what is being taught here is that sin alienates man from God. And it is the sin that alienates people from God and they sense that alienation and they're stumbling around and they're creating 70,000 idols all over the city of Athens and millions of idols in the city of Miami and they're groping and they're fumbling and they don't know exactly what, but they, 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 there's something bigger than me. I just don't know what it is. I'm going to call it the unknown God. Here's the point. Here's the point. No man can blame God for his alienation from God. No man can regard God as distant because it says here, he is not far from each one of us. We are not, we are the one to blame. He's not far from us. We're far from him. That's the point. That's the point. God created us to be in fellowship with him. And when we are not, we instinctively know something is wrong. Apart from God's grace, we can never find God, though he is not far from us. It's the groping. It's the idol. It's the, it's the altar to the unknown God. There it is in their culture, right there. And finally, who is this God that we proclaim? He's the judge of all. He's the judge of all. Look at verse 30. Paul now is going to bring this exposition of the unknown God Not a new deity, but the unknown God they're already worshiping. He's going to bring it to a jarring conclusion with a call to repentance based on the certainty of God's judgment of all mankind. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul ends his exposition of this unknown God by stating clearly and logically that now, now that this unknown God has been made known to him, God will no longer overlook their ignorance. 
See, they were worshiping at the altar of the unknown God. God sent Paul to exposit the unknown God. And now that you know, there's no more, there's no more excuse for this. God is not going to overlook your ignorance anymore, Athenians. This is a bold statement. And then he, then he goes even bolder. He says, and God commands everybody, all people everywhere. Do you read that there? God commands all people everywhere. All people everywhere. Commands them. He commands you, Jews who have been worshiping God in your synagogue for centuries. He commands you, Gentiles, that worship him in the temples. He commands you, Stoic and Epicurean, Epicurean distant philosophers that think you're so smart, and the educated members of the Oropagus. He commands you to bow down and repent and worship God now, and that's Jesus Christ, the one whom he raised from the dead. And this appeal to worship Jesus, it's based on the coming judgment. Look at verse 31. God has fixed a day. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And this man is Jesus because it's the man that God raised from the dead. Remember, what's the reason he's in the Areopagus preaching anyways? Because what's he, what's he been preaching? Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So he brings it all together. Jesus is vindicated. He's appointed both Lord and judge by his resurrection. And just as all the nations of mankind were created through the first Adam, so all the nations of mankind, every single person will be judged by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And so, we must repent. Now sadly... Because Greeks do not believe in the afterlife, they burst out laughing at Paul. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But, apparently, others wanted to hear. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So what happens? Verse 33. Paul, having secured the right to preach the resurrected Jesus. At this point... Paul has received the right to preach the resurrected Jesus. They understand that it's this altar of the unknown God. He's been exposited. He's been explained. They're mocking Paul because his religion has resurrection in it, which none of the Greeks believed in. When you died, you died. That was it. And then we learn in verse 34 that God gave them converts. Two of them are named. Dionysius, the Areopagite, who was a member of the Areopagus Council, Some say that he may have been the first elder or episcopos in the church of Athens, and maybe its first martyr. And then Damaris, a woman who may have played a key role in the church in Athens, as well as perhaps in the church in Corinth. Bottom line is this. Friends, God commands us, he commands you and me, to stop touring and start talking. Stop touring and start talking. He commands us to proclaim the true and living God, Jesus, the resurrected Lord of all, and call all people everywhere to repent and worship him, which is point two. Call all people to worship the true and living God. Listen, this call to repentance is for all of us. Tim Keller defines idolatry in the following way. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. What good thing have you made into an ultimate thing? Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing more than on God. What are you building your life and meaning on? Is it a good thing? Is it success in school? Success in the church? Success at home? Your children? Children? Your parents? Your theology? 
These are all good things. But if you have built your life upon them more than on God, that's an idol. As is your money, your status, your reputation. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Why do you think that the first three of the Ten Commandments deal with idolatry, friends? You think those are throwaway commandments? Like, you know, the prelude, like the pregame? Then we get into the real, you know, big stuff. No, because God knows our hearts, because God sent Jesus to win us back, who were given over to lawlessness to be a people for his possession, that nothing else would possess you. Nothing. Nothing. I call us all to repent and worship the true and living God based on who he is, friends. And I'm calling myself to this as well. He is the creator of all. Our creation by God in his image calls for our worship of him. He is the sustainer of all. Our dependence on God calls for our worship on him. You can put the outline there to review as I'm reading through this. He is the ruler of all. His rule calls us to worship him. And I call us to repent and worship the true and living God based on the certainty of the coming judgment fixed by God through his appointed man, the risen Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, God's judgment is universal. No one can escape it. God's judgment is righteous. All secrets will be revealed. All evidence will be put on the table. Justice will be served. God's judgment is definite. We don't know when, but we know who will judge us. Judgment day is coming. The day has been set and the judge has been seated. The question is whether you will come to an agreement with the judge before that day. And the Greeks had a, had a thought pattern for that. When Paul was telling them about the judge coming, they had an understanding that when the judge is coming, you should then try to make peace with the judge. You should try to have an agreement with the judge before the day of judgment comes. The question is, whether you will come to an agreement with the judge before that day. The judge is qualified indeed. How do you say is he qualified? By dying on the cross for the sins of his people, through his, though he was sinless, and then by being raised from the dead by his father to rule and to reign. The judge is Jesus. He is supremely qualified. Will you come and make peace with him by repenting? I call you, dear Palm Vista Community Church member, to worship God this morning. I call you to be done with your idols and give Jesus Christ your best, the first of your time, the first of your talents, the first of your treasures, and not your cold leftovers. I call you to give Jesus your affections and your attention right now. Who or what could possibly be more worthy than Jesus? I call you, dear guest, to know and worship the true and living God. And if you are a follower of Christ, then my message to you is this. I encourage you to flee the idols that can subtly and not so subtly arise in your heart and steal away the worship that only Jesus deserves. And if you, dear guests, are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have never truly repented. You have not made peace with the judge. You have not come to an agreement with the judge. Oh, you think you may have, but you haven't. If you have not bowed your knee to him, then I call you, friend, to believe in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through the grace of God alone for your salvation, then I call you to listen carefully and pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would bring understanding and faith to your heart. I call you to repent by God's grace and worship Jesus alone as Lord of all. I call you to resolve your conflict with the judge. Bow your knee to him, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Let's pray. Worship team, please come up.
Lord God, I pray for my friends this morning, those that are here, those that aren't here, those that tuned out in the middle of the sermon, those that actually left in the middle of the sermon. Lord, I pray for all of them. God, I pray that you would grab my heart. God, I pray that you would grab our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would say to us, worship me. Worship me, Al. Everything else upon which you build your life, everything else that you would value above me is but dust. It's art and imagination of your mind. Worship me. And so, Lord, I just say to you, I want to worship you. I want to be done with the idols that enslave me, that always disappoint, that hurt others around me. Lord, I want to worship you. I pray that this church will be a church that worships you radically, that knows you, Jesus, and that proclaims you boldly. Lord, you are Lord of South Florida. Jesus Christ is Lord of South Florida. And every lie that says otherwise is to be pulled down and silenced. May we proclaim you, Jesus, the crucified, risen, ascended Lord. The Lord, speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.